Those of you who know me and my ADD well know or will understand that I can spend only short bursts of time in IKEA before becoming completely overwhelmed and paralyzed by the vastness of choice and retreating to the car or in lieu of that, curling up in a fetal position on a piece of furniture, the name of which I cannot pronounce. Speaking of which, anyone want to hear me make an Ikea joke? <laughs> Sorry, you're going to have to make it yourself. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's good stuff. Yeah, I can be muted. Today's gospel reading from John 20 felt a little like Ikea to me this week, in that the choice of sermon material obtained therein is vast. Jesus greeting the disciples with peace be with you. Jesus breathing on the disciples for the reception of the Holy Spirit. There's also the forgiveness and withholding of forgiveness of sins. Now that is a topic. Then you've got the restoration of the disciple we've come to know as Doubting Thomas, who wasn't really doubting at all, if you think about it. I mean, he literally came out and said, unless this happens, I will never believe. Seems like there's little doubt there. And by the way, Jesus makes the perfect healthy correction of Thomas without a scintilla of toxic shame or condemnation. Well, of course it was perfect because Jesus. And of course, John's statement in verse 30 of his reason for writing the book that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we might have life in his name. All of these are worth exploring. The thing I'd like to key in on today, though, precedes all of these in this passage. It's known as the Johannine Great Commission in verse 20. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Which begs the question, well, where is he sending them? And by extension, us. And we know the answer to that from the Great Commission in Matthew 28 into, quote-unquote, the world to make disciples. And that being the case, it behooves us to know in the proper and biblical sense as much about how we ought to see and interpret the world as we possibly can. This, by the way, is a follow-on to the sermon that I preached last week on the meaning of the resurrection and the third part of a three-part series on the integral nature of human vocation to the mission of God in the world. I intended to preach in January, then got snowed out for two weeks, then was away for a weekend, and then it was Lent. So that got dropped. But here goes. Eleven years ago, when we planted, <coughs> pardon me, eleven years ago when we planted Redeemer, we 
tried to describe what the characteristics of a Redeemer stakeholder would look like. So we came up with seven characteristics of a Redeemer stakeholder. First one is this, pursues Christ relationally and personally. Two, seeks descriptive rather than prescriptive faith. Three, seeks to understand the nature of problems. In other words, get at what's really underneath the things that are problems around us. Four, is an ongoing learner. Five, understands that all truth is God's truth. Six, leans into the reality of paradox and complexity. (coughs) And seven, is drawn more to patterns than particulars. And it's the last one, patterns versus particulars, that's important as we move toward a biblical understanding of our mission and shared vision for the world, our shared vision to proclaim and promote the gospel, giving ever more time, talent, and treasure to seeking the flourishing of our neighbors. Because in order to really understand these, we've got to look at some of the bigger stories that reveal important patterns in the scriptures about how we see and interpret the world that Jesus has sent us into. When we get lost in particulars, we lose patterns. And particularity has been a plague in the church over the last few centuries. We often cannot see the forest for the trees. Way back in January, we looked at five threads in an ancient seamless fabric labeled avodah in the Old Testament. Work, worship, service, ministry, and the arts, all the same word. They're not cut from different bolts of cloth. They're woven on one loom. God sees them all as integral. Sunday and Monday are vitally connected. The week prior to that, we looked at the four-chapter meta-narrative of the scriptures, the through line of the whole Bible, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. The easy way to remember that, of course, is ought, is, can, and will. Sadly, the first and last chapters of that story, Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, are missing in many Bibles today, not literally, but functionally. And that's perilous because it's only in the bigger story that we learn that creational design is more good and more comprehensive than we think. It then serves as the template or design for what ought to be. And this is critical because if we don't understand a thing's design, we lose the sense of its meaning. Marriage is a perfect example of that, and and we find In Jesus' words, uh, in Matthew 19, when he was being challenged on marriage and divorce, what did he do? He referred to creation. He said, haven't you heard that from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, and being two, they became one flesh? He also says at one point in his answer, Moses allowed this because of your hard hearts, but it wasn't this way, and there it is again, from the beginning. We also learn that the fall, sin, then affects that good creation comprehensively. Everything, it says in Romans 8, in all creation groans under the weight of sin. 
but redemption in Jesus Christ reaches just as far as the fall and will one day be total. That's the big story. It's reflected in the comprehensive language of Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before, guess what? all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in him everything, that he in everything might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The horizon of creation is at the very same time the horizon of sin and salvation. To conceive of either the fall or Christ's deliverance as accompanied less than the whole of creation is to compromise the biblical teaching of the scope of creation and the radical nature of the fall and the cosmic scope of the promise of redemption and restoration. In the first chapter of the book of the Gospel of Mark, which is um, the gospel we're primarily reading through this lectionary year, Jesus' ministry in Galilee begins with a proclamation of good news, which is what the word gospel means. In, Math, in Mark 1.14, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What follows immediately are three short stories of the places Jesus went and the people he encountered. Together, they offer a beautiful and vast invitation to the kingdom that is, radically, that is radical and overwhelms the vital space that he encounters. In those, he goes to the common and mundane places, and there he invites anyone who will listen into his kingdom. Mark's stories are told sequentially in a way that I believe presents a model of the gospel. Because when you read them together as Mark told them, rather than dissecting them into small exegetical particulars, as we so often do today, a pattern emerges, and that ought to grab our attention. The three stories Mark tells are progressively structured in regard to place. Again, all of this is in Mark 1, which we have read through publicly. I invite, encourage you to read it again. From the Jewish synagogue where Jesus preaches and casts out an unclean spirit, it moves immediately to the home of Simon and Andrew and the healing of Simon's mother-in-law, for which I'm sure Simon must have been very grateful. Then to the door of the house and out into the street where it says he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. Then in the following paragraphs, Jesus is preaching and healing all throughout the towns and villages of Galilee. Mark seems to describe a progression occurring in four places, synagogue, house, doorway, and street. The synagogue as a place of public prayer, the house a place of private life, and the external space, what we might call the public square, is the place of national corporate life. The juxtaposition 
of these spaces is provocative, religious and mundane, private and public together. And it shows, I think, that Jesus' offer of the kingdom is an offer made to every dimension of life. Christ's activity in the scriptures is never limited to what we've come to understand as the sacred space, but rather reaches into every part of human existence. This is why Abraham Kuyper, the 19th century Dutch theologian and prime minister, famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. In the Western world, however, that idea began to shift pretty radically as the Enlightenment took root. The 17th century Cartesian dictum, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, meant that we began to imagine human beings primarily as thinking things. We began to become kind of brains on a stick The body and the mind became compartmentalized in particular. Our bodies became not for much good more than just kind of schlepping our brains from meeting to meeting. And you can see the effects of this even today in the modern Western church. Services are mostly designed for a few minutes of singing or in a lot of cases watching the band perform for 20 or 30 minutes and then hearing a content heavy 45-minute sermon. Now listen, I am not making fun of this. I spent the meatiest part of my professional life as a worship pastor in a megachurch. I'm just trying to say that this is where that practice came from. Discipleship, in most cases, has become mostly about cramming a bunch of knowledge into our heads, and it's so normal that we don't even stop to think if it's right. Thinking right has become the main thing. Think right, act right is the logic. But am I the only one who's ever noticed a significant and embarrassing gap between what I know to be right and what I actually do? Find me a smoker who does not know that smoking will kill them. See, we don't do what we think as much as we do what we love. And what you do reveals what you love. So with Descartes as its starting point, the de facto goal of the Enlightenment became to understand the natural world and humankind's place in it solely on the basis of reason and proof. Immanuel Kant was probably the last really influential Enlightenment philosopher of modern Europe, and his ideas further opened the way for a radical change in the church's prevailing view of the world. Kant divided all of reality into two two particulars, phenomenal and noumenal. The phenomenal is the public world of empirical facts, stuff you can prove by experiment or reason. Once something is proven, you can know it for certain, and you can publicly encourage others to believe it. By contrast, the noumenal world deals with morality and spirituality, things that can't be rationally or empirically proven. Beliefs in this realm have to be accepted by faith. Therefore, we can never know them. 
Numinal beliefs are personal and private and should be kept out of the public square. This dichotomy between fact and faith produced a pronounced and disastrous compartmentalization in Western thought. Sacred and secular are seen as divided, which leads to an incorrect and unbiblical understanding of some things as being strictly secular. Also during the first half of the 19th century, there was a fundamental shift in the theology and practice of American evangelicalism. Preachers like Charles Finney led a revival movement known as the Second Great Awakening. The movement was almost entirely focused on winning professions of faith, which is good. But to do that, techniques had to be simplistic and pragmatic, and in the process, they continually affirmed the superiority of the spiritual or sacred over and against the secular or worldly. The lasting legacy of this movement for American Christians has been a dichotomy between faith and the rest of life. Sunday and Monday are seen as disconnected. But then, what do you do with what St. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5? And again, the language, very comprehensive, everything Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it has been it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So let's think about what this means for us practically. First, everything I've said today is based on the foundational idea that creation is comprehensive, and so is the fall. In other words, it affects everything. But the redemption begun by Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection is so vast and so cosmic in nature that it's the beginning of the restoration, not just of human souls, but the whole of creation, everything. And this foundational idea has two parts. The first is that the word redemption means restoration to the goodness of an originally good creation and not the addition of something new. The second is that the restoration affects the whole of creation and not just some limited area within it. It's striking that virtually all the basic words describing salvation in the scriptures imply a return to an originally good state, not something new layered on top. The word redemption is a really good example. To redeem is literally to buy back, and the image it evokes is that of a, kid, of a kidnapping. The point of redemption is to buy back from bondage. The prefix re always indicates going back to an original intent. Renewal, restoration, redemption, reformation, regeneration. Even the Greek word for for salvation, soteria, means a return to health or security after sickness or danger. Interestingly, The very first English translation of the Greek New Testament published by William Tyndale in 1525 regularly renders the word not as salvation, but as health. Which I don't know if you caught that, but in the song that we sang today that was written in 1680, it also refers to health as part of salvation. Jesus is the great physician who heals our sin sickness and restores us to health. The practical implications of this are huge, and you, I believe, 
have a handout, an extra piece of paper in your bulletin today, and it's just something I want to draw your attention to. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this because we don't have a lot of time, but it, it lays out kind of fundamentally how we, how we have seen the world and how the scriptures see the world. If we come at it from a two-chapter gospel perspective, in other words, we begin with the fall, and it is all about redemption, then we, then, we, then we necessarily draw a line between the kingdom of God, which is sacred, because we began with the fall, and the world, which is secular. And so church and anything Christian fits above that line. That's the kingdom of God. It's sacred. And then family, work, sex, politics, education, science, entertainment, all of those are the world, which we think of as secular. But if we come at it from the four-chapter perspective and, and use that as a template for understanding creation, then the kingdom of God is the design that he has given everything in creation. And the fall, the world, is our default. In other words, everything has the design of God in it, and everything is also corrupted. So it's not these things are good and these things are bad. It's, it is that everything bears the mark of sin, and everything bears the design of creation. Because the earth is the Lord's, and everything in it the world, and all who live in it. And I'm not going to spend any more time on that. Think about this, though. Look at it. Marriage shouldn't be avoided by Christians, but redeemed. Emotions should not be rep repressed, but purified. Sex isn't to be shunned, but redeemed. Politicians shouldn't be, our politics, maybe politicians should be declared off limits, but not politics. <laughs> Uh, should be declared off limits, but, but reformed. Art ought not be pronounced worldly, but restored. Business, law, medicine, education must no longer be relegated to the secular world, but must be redeemed. Virtually every sector of human life yields the same kinds of examples. No longer can we think of life in its particulars, separating them into distinct categories. Rather, all of life and in all of life, it's the Christian's task to do the hard work of desert, discerning what is the design of creation here and what is the default, what is good and what has become corrupted. Understanding this makes a radical difference in the way Christians see the, and interpret the world because they believe the beauty of creational design underlies all of reality. They seek and find evidence of this in everything. And because they confess that a dark spiritual default underlies their experience, then they can see abnormality, abnormality where others seem, see normality and possibilities of renewal where others see inevitable distortions. Test everything, Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, and cling to what is good. I'm sorry to those who want answers. But the fruitfulness of design and default lies not so much in giving answers, easy or otherwise, as in suggesting biblically-based questions. Not, is this thing good or bad? 
but rather what's its design and what's its default, what's good about this and what's bent. Not, does this belong to Christ, but rather, how do we bring redemption to this area of our dominion because it's all Christ's? And unless we keep these kinds of questions in mind, we continually run the risk of condemning the legitimate and good and even encouraging the legitimate and good and our zeal to reject evil or of embracing the corrupt and our desire to do justice to the good and legitimate. Design and default requires careful and patient discernment. It requires seeing the world in, and, and seeing the world in terms of design and default is full of paradox and complexity, which our lazy brains hate. Everything, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is made holy by the word of God and prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.